0: Turn with me to Romans chapter 12, and we'll be looking together at verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, as we're continuing the series and the focus that Pastor Don, Pastor Dinya started on worship, serve, and connect as essential parts of being a part of a church and being a part of South Church. And so far today, we're still talking about worship. It's a huge subject. So Pastor Don talked about what I would talk about this time, and so we decided to do at least one more message of worship, but he may take it even further next week as well. It's a vastly important topic, as even topic sounds too abstract, but as we'll see, I hope as we continue through this passage, and it's also important and for many of you it's not the first time that you've heard me say it there's really a serious misunderstanding about what the essence of worship really is even among evangelical Bible believing churches and I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that we desperately need to pay close attention to our Bibles again to correct this misunderstanding because worship is at the heart of the authentic life of every true Christian and of every true church. The Father seeks people to truly worship Him. And so one of the best passages for helping us understand what worship essentially is is Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. And also in these verses when we think about these verses in relationship to the rest of Paul's letter, in this passage we find that the downward spiral of false and foolish worship and corrupted minds and godless hearts that Paul described in chapter 1 of Romans finds its reversal in what's described here, in the Christian's reasonable worship now of God their renewed minds, and their dedicated lives. And so the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And then he says, This is your true and proper what? Worship. Or... The NIV 1984 had this is your spiritual act of worship. And so Paul is saying right here, you want to know what true worship is? I've just described it in these verses. Paul has come to this letter, to this place in the letter, to show them how all the truth about God's saving work in Christ that fills chapters 3 to 11 is to be applied and worked out in daily life as individuals and the rest of the chapter as a church family together. And Paul can summarize Romans chapter 3 through 11 with the phrase, God's mercies. He's already described and explained God's mercies in declaring us righteous by grace alone through faith alone because of the cross of Christ. The mercies of making us new in the Holy Spirit, of union with Christ, and how we can become new people who walk in newness of life. And I've already mentioned this morning the no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and that now uh, we live the new life of Romans chapter 8, and all the assurances of that wonderful chapter, including verse 28. That in everything God's working for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose and that nothing can separate us from the love of God and that God who didn't spare his own son but freely gave him up for us all how shall he not with him freely give us all things? And then Paul goes in this extraordinary section in chapters 9 through 11 to show God's continuing work in and through Israel. There's mystery to what's going on at the, time, at the present. But eventually Israel turns back to God and recognizes Jesus as Messiah. All of that is what Paul has in mind when he says, Now, in view of God's mercies, I urge you, I exhort you to do what's only right, what's only fitting, What only matches with the mercies that you've received and offer yourself unreservedly as a sacrifice of thanks and devotion to God. The mercies of God, though, aren't just that which has happened to us in the past. God's power continues to work in our lives It exerts a total and all-encompassing claim over us. Grace now reigns over us, Paul says in chapter 5, verse 21. Because that's true, it's entirely fitting that our response be one that is total and all-encompassing. The offering of our entire persons as sacrifices to God. As Paul uses this language of offering... He clearly has in mind the sacrifices of the Old Testament system. When God's people would present animal sacrifices as acts of gratitude and devotion to him. I had never really thought about it before, before I was preparing this sermon. But in a crucial way, Christianity in Paul's time was very different than nearly every other available world religion. They all had sacrifices animal sacrifices and rituals connected with it that they would continue to uh, participate in to show their devotion to God but Christianity even unlike Old Testament Judaism which had the sacrificial system and it was absolutely essential and you went to temple to do it if you were nearby but now Christianity now that Jesus has been the perfect sacrifice and he's fulfilled all of what they were pointing to and all of what they meant, now Christianity is a religion, and there are no more sacrifices. And there's no more going to the temple. You don't have to go to the temple anymore. Jesus is the true temple. He fulfills that as well. And so, unlike the Jews under the old covenant, the language starts to shift. Christians in the New Covenant don't offer a bloody sacrifice of an animal on an altar, but, Peter says, we offer spiritual sacrifices, such as, Hebrews 13, 5, a sacrifice of praise to God, which is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Verse 16 goes on to say in Hebrews, Do not neglect to do good, and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So that's, those are the kinds of sacrifices that we present to God in gratitude to Him as we live the Christian life. And in Romans chapter 15 verse 16, Paul described his evangelistic missionary work in terms of priestly service that he's rendering to God and he calls those whom he leads to Christ an offering acceptable to God. But here in Romans 12:1, Paul goes even further. For here the sacrifice we offer is not some particular form of service or praise. Here we offer our bodies, and our bodies represent the offer of all that we are. I think Paul says bodies because that's how we interact with the world around us, through our physical aspect, through our bodies. And so those are what, it's not only what we can give that God demands, now He demands us. That's the sacrifice that New Covenant believers present as a thank offering to God. We live out our devotion to Him through the members of our bodies, the body parts, as Paul put it in Romans six, the ancient church father Chrysostom said, "How is the body, it may be asked, to become a sacrifice?" And he answers it this way: "Let the eye look on no evil thing, and it has become a sacrifice. Let your tongue speak nothing filthy, filthy, and it has become an offering. Let your hand, Do no lawless deed, and it has become a whole burnt offering. What Paul says here echoes what he's already written in chapter 6. Do not offer any part of your body to sin as a tool, as an instrument for wickedness. Think of how concrete and practical this is. We sin through our body parts, don't we? Through our human faculties but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness every body part every human faculty that you have is to be enlisted in God's service, and no faculty that you have is to be used against him and his goodwill. Think of the lyrics from that classic song of dedication that we don't sing quite as much anymore, but, and I won't sing all the lyrics, or I won't sing any of them, I won't say all the lyrics, but to quote a few. Take my hands and let them move. At the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. I hear about a need of someone in the life of the congregation. My hands go to work and my feet take me to be with them, to draw alongside. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my King. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Boy, our lips, our conversation, the communicating we do. Wow, is that important. Paul says in Ephesians 4, no corrupting communication come out of your mouth. Only what's necessary. Only what's edifying. Only what... Builds others up. Every word spoken. Every comment posted. Every tweet tweeted. Or however exactly that goes. (laughs) Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. You put it up for sacrifice. It's God's. They don't jump off the altar. Take my heart. It is thine own, the seed of my disposition, of what most, most matters to me and what I'm most devoted to. Take my heart, it's thine own. From now on, it shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be. And then this wonderful, wonderful phrase that really reflects what Paul is saying here. Ever, only, all for thee. That's what Paul's talking about. He goes on to describe the sacrifice that we offer with our bodies using three adjectives, and all of them echo the metaphor of sacrifice from the Old Testament. The first one, though, is surprising. Living, unlike the sacrifices in the Old Testament where the animals were put to death, the believer goes on living in their new life of all-encompassing dedication to God, walking in newness of life, but still were unreservedly his, like the sacrifices were. Second, holy, a holy sacrifice. The word holy fundamentally and first means set apart for God. Set ap- there were profane things that were used, common use, but the holy things, instruments, utensils, they're set apart for God, only for His use. That's true of the believer too. And then, acceptable, well-pleasing to God. And if we live this way, it will be a sacrifice that will be well-pleasing to God that's the thing that matters most about every one of our lives and then having said all of this Paul says climactically this is your true and proper what? worship devoting yourself gladly gratefully unreservedly to God so that you willingly and gladly serve him in holiness in every area of life that's worship that's the core meaning other things are ways to worship are aspects but this is the essence the life lived in dedication to God and so again it's hard for me to overstate how important that phrase is for authentic New Testament Christianity And how crucial it is, if we're ever going to really get our heads heads on straight when it comes to what worship truly and essentially is, to hear what Paul's saying. Different translations put it differently, but they all use like reasonable service of the King James. That word service is one of the New Testament words for worshiping. And we'll see the three words in a minute that the Bible uses the most. I say this against the background of a kind of a strange... Uh, development in Bible-believing Christianity, even you know, over the past 20 or 25 years, where worship is mainly thought of in terms of music and music-making. Um, consider these common phrases to d- today. Worship leader. What's that person doing? How do they function in the church or in the service? It's the music person. The worship leader. Worship band. What's that group? Well, it's the musicians. The instrumental or the worship team is often the singers. So, music connection. And music is at the core of it. Every now and then I hear people talk about a worship set. And it means like a cluster of songs. A worship set. A worship conference. You're going to be studying, doing, learning music. In all of these familiar phrases, the word worship has a core meaning of music or music making in some form or another. But in the Bible, including most certainly the New Testament, worship is not mainly a synonym for music making at all. But for many today, that's the core of what they think of and what they anticipate to experience. It's just one example, I read this anecdote from Bob Coughlin. He's a dedicated Christian musician himself, used to be a part of the group Glad, then continued to write for them. But he's become a musician who's really studied God's Word, and he's written some very helpful books on worship, including one that Pastor Corb uses. Uh, he's done it in his equippers time, a book called Worship Matters. But he says this anecdote to kind of illustrate what I'm talking about. I once heard a woman describe how Bono and you 2 taught her more about worship than any Sunday worship leader. Coughlin says that's alarming. Our goal on Sunday morning is unlike any concert and far more significant. And yet sometimes it seems like We're attending a concert. He says, we're seeking to build a worshiping community whose lives demonstrate that they are more impressed with the greatness of the Savior than their surroundings and modern technology. Of course making music, especially singing, by the congregation, not just the worship team up front. Of course that's one way we can worship and serve and revere God but there are many other things equally so and I emphasize all of this again not because I don't value music or singing in our services when we were singing crown him with many crowns when our emotions get engaged as we sing even more than if we had just recited those words. so music and especially singing has a crucial powerful role to play, but we make a mistake when we think of worship mainly in those terms. Jesus said the Father seeks those who worship Him. That's why it's so important to be as clear as we possibly can be when it comes to understanding what biblical worship really is. So just a quick reminder, the biblical words for worship, when in your Bibles, You'll see worship, actually the translation, it's one of these biblical word groups underneath it. The first group means worship as homage or grateful submission to God. Literally it means kneeling, bowing, bending the knee. Now what is that gesture? What is that activity? What does that posture communicate? Sometimes it's sprawled out face to the ground. It's submission, a total unreserved submission and devotion and dependence on a superior, on a great king. One of the main Bible words for worship means bowing down before the Lord. But the gesture was meaningful only if it was motivated by a genuine desire to acknowledge God's majesty and holiness and to live under his rule. In the Bible, book of Isaiah, book of Amos, if people were still literally going through the motions, but they really weren't submitted to God or surrendered to God, God would say, please stop it. I don't. He'll, he actually said, I hate your assemblies now. And so worship is this grateful submission and devotion to God. The second key group of Bible words for worship focuses on worship as service to God. That's what Paul is using here. This is your reasonable service. The ministry of priests and Levites was a specialized form of service to God, but God, even in the Old Testament, required a lifestyle of total allegiance from his people as a whole. Service was meant to be expressed in everyday obedience. The language of service here implies that God is a great king who requires faithfulness and obedience from those who belong to him. So worship means submitting to him. Worship means serving him. And the third word emphasizes worship as a profound reverence for God. It means to revere him. It's the idea of the fear of the Lord. A profound and deep respect for God that leads us to keep His commandments, obey His voice, walk in His ways, turn from evil, and serve Him. When we understand worship in these profoundly biblical ways, we can see how all aspects of our response and activities toward God in a church, what do we call them? Service. Why do we call them a church? Service because we're supposed to serve God you're not just watching you're serving when we gather so it's not only music making when you in church acknowledge and confess your sin you're worshiping God by showing him respect and reverence. When you give your offering, you are worshiping in an act of devotion, submission. You want his kingdom work to go forward. When you, if you teach God's word, if you teach one of the Sunday school classes, you are performing a profound act of serving to teach the word of God and maybe these days it's most important to say when it comes to our gathered corporate meetings our worship services the way that you listen to the way that you attend to the divine speech if a pastor if a preacher is faithfully interpreting this word this Bible to you you are hearing the voice of God and the way you listen and the way you respond is surely about the most profound activity of worshiping that you can possibly do. That's why I want to recover the Word. Not because the musical aspect doesn't matter. It matters a lot. But it's not the heart. And it's not the core. And if we think it is, we can think we're worshiping God when the main things aren't really going on in our lives. But what Paul is saying here goes further still. Because Paul is not now primarily thinking about their gatherings. What we think of as a church service on one day of the week, Sunday morning, for about an hour or so. Paul is thinking of worship as something that a devoted believer does every day of the week. Worship, as we've been seeing, is primarily about day-to-day living in total dedication to God. Worship is about offering yourself and all you are. As Warren Wiersbe puts it, worship is the believers' response of all that they are, mind, emotions, will, body, to what God is and says and does. That's verse 1. But then in fact what comes next in verse 2 continues to spell out the most practical ways What that daily worship and service to God actually looks like. And we'll have to go fast. True and proper worship in everyday living means resisting worldliness. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. But who in the world knows what worldliness is or means anymore? We used to talk about it. And then we maybe overdid it. And now we hardly talk about it anymore and don't really see it as much of a threat or a danger to our spirituality or our life before God. What does Paul mean by the pattern of this world? One writer has said that worldliness is an attitude and an outlook that makes sin look normal and righteousness seem weird and abnormal. What are some examples? Consumerism is perhaps the number one religion in America today. Our shopping malls have become the new shrines, the new public places of devotion where our culture gathers in search of salvation. Well this is a a, a little bit dated with the state of the malls it seems like. But we identify ourselves through the fashions we wear, the music we listen to, the cars we drive. Our primary priesthood is a mixture of corporations, advertisers, and political machinations that mediate transcendence for us through social media and the global market. Religious devotion is not dead in the west, it has merely migrated toward a new center. But when we say consumerism, that's out in the world. But have self-centered consumeristic attitudes infiltrated into the church today? With a preoccupation with my preferences, and meeting my needs over the Bible-based desire to, de- to defer and to serve one another and to be a blessing to others? Remember Paul's word to the Philippians? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others better than yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the other. Or what about it when churches and so-called Christian ministries move from prayerfully and urgently evangelizing the lost and edifying the saved to entertaining people instead and even calling it outreach. Remember the old phrase living with eternity's values in view? It's Another one I don't hear very much anymore. A key part of what it means to not let the world squeeze you into its mold is to live in light of not this age, but the age to come. To live in light of the reality of you and every person you know will eternally either be in the joys and bliss of heaven or the miseries of hell. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Today we had that prayer time for the Curry family as they began their work, return to work with the Dem tribe in Indonesia, and it has been great to have them and their sweet kids with us these past eight months. The Vacation Bible School missionaries, a lot of other ways too. But in some of my conversations with them, I've been reminded that it really is kind of tough, including especially sometimes in relation to the kids, to leave behind a much more comfortable and often fun life in the U.S. The times with family, they have someone in their family who's really struggling with cancer, terminal cancer. Now they'll be leaving her behind. The kids get used to a school that they enjoy, a church family that you're really beginning to know. And now, leaving it all three or four years again because there's a tribe of people halfway around the globe that don't know Jesus they don't have the word of God they don't have the gospel of God and if they never get it they'll go into a Christless eternity so somebody needs to go and the Curry's and others of our missionaries they've decided to go that's living with eternity's values in view and I promise you on judgment day they'll be very glad for the choice that they made one day in the age to come choices like that in this age will be seen to have been abundantly wise and good But these truths, that kind of dedication, they're not just for the missionaries. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, says Paul. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I've run out of time, but the point of it is, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When you gather... The primary thing that can happen in the gatherings is that you come into contact with the life-giving, life-shaping Word of God and you get changed by it. Read Ephesians 4 sometime this Lord's Day and see the renewal, the different outlook, the different values, the different way of thinking. Once you really start to take God and the things of God with the profound seriousness that they deserve. So come on Sunday mornings. Be a part of an adult community. Come to Equippers. Come when the Bible is unfolded and open. Why? So that you can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then to experience the blessing and the benefit of knowing by experience that the will of God is good and pleasing and perfect. Living in that kind of way, with that kind of devotion, that kind of dedication, presenting all I am to God in light of all he's mercifully done for me in Christ, that is not fanaticism, that is not extremism, that is not legalism. That is, says Paul, your true Proper worship. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you'll let the word of Christ richly inhabit our lives. The life of our church, the lives of our families, our individual lives. will never change an outlook or attitude or value system unless the spirit works through that word to transform us. Well, being transformed, not conformed, is part of the essence of what it means to worship you. And so, Lord, I pray that we'll go from this message and from this time and we'll seek to customize the application to know what does it mean for me to live out the truth that I am a living sacrifice, totally, unreservedly dedicated to you because of all that you are and all that you've done for me. In Christ's name, amen.